The following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. Let's open our Bibles this morning to the book of Hosea. And I'll go ahead and warn you today, this, the way these chapters are structured... We're actually going to look at two chapters of Hosea today. We've got four chapters left, and these final four chapters of Hosea kind of correspond to this third and final phase of Hosea's marriage. If you recall, way back when we started this, uh, this prophecy is being told through the life of a prophet. He was instructed to go and find a wife of harlotry and to have children of unfaithfulness, and, and it was almost as if he had to live out the story Uh, and many things that he was going to be preaching to God's people, he was living through them. So this this, uh, last portion, these last four chapters of Hosea kind of correspond to that phase of Hosea's marriage. And they also really emphasize the sovereign and triumphant love of God. You know, we have dealt a lot with judgment and wrath and, and punishment for sin up to this point but we're going to get a little bit of a shift in the message today. And don't be be distracted. Now that I say this, you're probably going to be. But don't be distracted by the fact I have two bottles of water up here. That really means nothing as far as how long we're going to be here or anything like that. So don't don't worry. I'm going to go ahead and take another drink while I'm thinking about that. Okay, and yeah, there's a case of water back here, so be afraid. Be very afraid. Okay, so... Uh, let me let me uh, paint the picture for you. I remember some of my now um, at this stage of my life, some of my most distinct memories of my childhood and my interaction with my parents, my father in particular, uh, have to do with looking back on instances in my life when I messed up. Or I did wrong, which I, you know, lots of instances to choose from. But I look back at some times in my life that I can recall some distinct moments <clears throat> where I, I really messed up. I really did wrong, and I was really deserving of punishment. Okay, and so at the time, my perspective was different, and maybe I didn't want the punishment and didn't think I really deserved the punishment I really did deserve. But now looking back, having kids of my own and having some, what I believe to be some similar feelings and similar perspective that I think my father must have had when he was dealing with me and now I'm trying to interact with my children. And, and here's, what, here's, here's the, the, the gist of it. When I look back now, I think I'm, I'm almost certain that my father was way more merciful and gracious than I ever knew. He, he, he did not punish me to the extent I deserved punishment. Does that make sense? I never would have said that then. As I was going through these times in my life, I never would have uh, dreamed of saying something like that. But now when I'm 
the age I am and the children I have and I interact with them and I think to myself how I feel when my children do something wrong and how I have a, an internal conflict of sorts where they need to be punished, they need to be instructed through this, but I just don't want to. You know, I don't want to punish them. I don't want to give them what they deserve. I want to be merciful. I want to be kind. I know I can't really completely do that because that would be doing them a disservice for the sake of discipline. But you, you, you see the conflict? The conflict of love and justice. That's a, that's a legitimate, that's a genuine conflict. So I can identify with that on a real personal level based on my interaction with my own father. And then I read this text and I, I, it gives me a whole new understanding of how I suspect God may be dealing with us as He deals with His people in Hosea. So I, that may be a lot to digest here at the beginning, but I wanted to just kind of set that stage so to speak. So when we read through this text and you see kind of how God is interacting and, and what we can learn from that and apply to our lives today, I pray it's going to be helpful and instructive for us. One note here, just a kind of a logistical note. The Scripture is going to be on the screen, but when we read and when we deal with the Scripture, I want you to know this one little note. Um, the way they have broken down in the English translation... Uh, is not the same as the Hebrew Bible. So when we get to the next to the last verse of chapter 11, uh, verse 12 in chapter 11 is actually in the Hebrew Bible is the first verse of chapter 12. So the last verse of chapter 11 is really goes with the next chapter. So you'll see that and you'll you probably note that when you hear it and read it, uh, the, the way the context leads us in that direction. But just, that's just a little programming note. Okay, so let's read the text. We'll start at the beginning of chapter 11, verse 1, and we'll go through the end of chapter 12. Here's what the Bible says. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. Out of Egypt I called my son. The more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love, and I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and fed them. They will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria, he will be their king, because they refused to return to me. The sword will whirl against their cities and will demolish their gate bars and consume them because of their counsels. So my people are bent on turning from me. Though they call them to the one on high, none at all exalts him. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. 
They will walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. Indeed, He will roar and His sons will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will settle them in their houses, declares the Lord. Ephraim surrounds me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. Judah is also unruly against God, even against the Holy One who is faithful. Ephraim feeds on wind and pursues the east wind continually. He multiplies lies and violence. Moreover, he makes a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord also has a dispute with Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel and in his maturity, he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He found him at Bethel, and there he spoke with us. Even the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his name. Therefore, return to your God. Observe kindness and justice. Wait for your God continually. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. And Ephraim said, Surely I've become rich. I've found wealth for myself. In all my labors they will find in me no iniquity, which would be sin. But I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. I will make you live in tents again, as in the days of the appointed festival. I have also spoken to the prophets, and I gave numerous visions, and through the prophets I gave parables. Is there iniquity in Gilead? Surely they are worthless. In Gilgal they sacrifice bulls. Yes, their altars are like the stone heaps beside the furrows of the field. Now Jacob fled to the land of Aram, and Israel worked for a wife, and for a wife he kept sheep. But by a prophet the Lord brought Israel from Egypt, and by a prophet he was kept. Ephraim has provoked to bitter anger, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and bring back his reproach to him. Father, I pray... In Jesus' name, that you will speak to us clearly today. Help us to understand. And then, Lord, help us to be obedient. For Christ's sake, for his glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So this, this two-chapter segment here, it's really interesting how Israel is kind of in view in chapter 11. And then in chapter 12, we have an indictment on Judah and then uh, a judgment about Israel. And we get to see some, some snippets of the life of Jacob that demonstrate what God's doing and how he's dealt with his people. So let's just start out. We'll, we'll just kind of go through this systematically best we can. And I, I feel like as we get to the end, things will become more clear and help us understand a little bit better. First of all, in chapter 11, you get a view of Israel's past, present, and future in, in, in sections here of how God has dealt with them. You start off with Israel's past. This is a messianic prophecy in verse 1 because you'll see in the second part of verse 1, out of Egypt I called my son. If you remember... When Mary and Joseph and Jesus was born and uh, there was lots of uh, attempts to squash that 
the coming of the Messiah and everything. And so remember they fled to Egypt and they had to come out of Egypt. Out of Egypt I called my son. You read in Matthew's Gospel this, a quote from this about how out of Egypt Jesus came ultimately. He was, he was born in, Jer- uh, in Bethlehem. He went to Nazareth. He went to Egypt. All these pieces to the puzzle play into the Messianic prophecy. So when you think about Israel as a people, as a nation, as God's people, there was nothing in Israel that made them superior or made them special. It was God's calling on them to demonstrate some things, to show the rest of the world who He was. It was always a focus on God, and He used Israel for that purpose. So there was nothing about them in particular that made them more desirable. And so the explanation of God's love is actually found in His love itself. And so, have you ever asked yourself this question? God, why do you love me? Have you ever been at a point in your life when you realize you've failed or you've disappointed or you've not followed God, you've not been obedient to His Word, and you're just, you, you don't know what else to say? And you say, why do you still love me? You know what the answer is? Because He loves you. Just It's who He is. You are His special, unique creation. So, we preach, Darlene and I try to preach this to our girls all the time. Don't you ever let another person, whether it's some stupid boy, yeah, I said, that's right, or whether it's a, a girlfriend, don't you ever let another human being define your value. Your value is found in the fact that Jesus Christ created you as a treasure. That's why you're special. That's why you are always valuable in His sight. Because He created you. You're you're a beautiful creation to Him. And no one else can alter that. No No one else's opinion can change who you are in Christ. And so... His love is, is, it is what it is. I hate using that phrase, but He loved them because He loved them. That's it. So the adoption of God's people is based on God's love and purposes. He loved them, Israel. He called them. And because of that, they should love Him. Right? He continually demonstrates His love to Israel, to us. And so we should, in turn, love Him back. Because like in verses 3 and 4, uh, without God's care, Israel would have, would have surely died. Look at the things he says here in the text. Uh, it was I who taught them to walk. I took them in my arms. But they didn't know. They didn't know it was I who healed them. It's almost like all these things, God is caring for His people all the time. And yet they're not giving Him credit for what He's doing. They didn't know. He's doing these things. Verse 4, I led them with the cords of a man, with bonds of love. I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws. I bent down and fed them. God is caring for His people, but there's no acknowledgement. And so because there's no acknowledgement, there's no love and worship. You see how that fits together? If the people would recognize that it was God who was caring for them so lovingly and so fully, then they would direct that love back to Him, that gratitude. But they don't recognize that it's Him who's doing these things. Just like the prodigal son, Israel went her own way 
into a far country. That's Israel's past. Now Israel's present. When you get to verse 5, this is a recurring theme. Israel turned away from God. And so really their present tense is simply this. They turned away and so because of that, judgment's coming. And this time it's coming in the form of a destructive invasion. So when you see um, Assyria mentioned here, and you see uh, different peoples that God raises up to use to discipline His people, and it's, it's uncomfortable and unpleasant at the time, but it's, it's not that the, the evil people are prevailing, it's just the fact that God is using them to get His people's attention. That's the present case with Israel. Now, what about the future? The last... Uh, Four verses of chapter 11, and when I say that, I'm referring to 8 through 11, because remember, verse 12 really goes with the next chapter. So the future of Israel. God has all this time been comparing Himself to an earthly father. And look at the... This is what I I was talking about in the introduction. When I was talking about how, um, how I feel toward my children and how I see now maybe what my father must have felt with me and my sister, and, and I realized, okay, he was, he was holding back. All that time when I thought, I, oh, man, it couldn't get much worse than this whipping right here. That was bad. But then I think back now, oh, well, I probably should have got more than that because I was pretty rotten. So look at the conflict. It, it appears like God is conflicted. When you see this text in verse 8 especially, how can I give you up? He's referring to Israel, um, Judah as Ephraim. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? It's almost like he knows the discipline that's needed, but it's almost like he's reluctant. Right? And then look at the next two lines. This is interesting. He uses these two cities as examples. How can I make you like Admah? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Those two cities were destroyed just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Those are, are um, well-known, right? Sodom and Gomorrah were burned up. That's when Lot was escaping. His wife turned to a pillar of salt. That whole account. And so these two cities are referenced. They were destroyed the same way. And, and, but look what God says. How can I make you like that? How can I do that to you? It's not, these are my people. They need some discipline. But how can I do that? But then look what he says in verse 9. I'm God, not a man. That is, that's profound. Because you ever tried to figure out God? You ever tried to figure out why God does a certain thing in a certain circumstance and then you always come up like, well, I, just, I, don't, I have no idea. I just can't figure it out. And that's by design. Because God is God, we're not um, Isaiah 55, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts, says the Lord. Uh, we cannot, we can't figure that out. And, and it's a good thing, because if we could, God wouldn't be as almighty as He says He is, right? And He is. So, so don't, don't, we need to manage our expectations. We, we can't fully understand how God is working and why He does what He does when He does and how He does because He's God and and He knows things we don't. 
And, and that's because He is Almighty. He is the Creator. He's over everything. So He's somewhat conflicted here, but He says, I'm God, not a man. And even though judgment's going to come, it's going to be followed by a regathering. See verses 10 and 11. God is a God of justice, but He's also a God who acts in love to spare His people. And so the judgment that He sends, even that we always, we like to say, or at least I like to say, uh, punishment fits the crime. You know, with God, punishment fits the crime. Because He, he is always uh, just in His dealings with us. So we, we never have to wonder, well, was that too much? No. No. God, God knows what He's doing. And so He knows everything about the situation. There's no lack of information. So he's a God of justice, but he also acts in love to spare his people. Now, this right here is a little transition, and we're going to see now how Hosea really demonstrates the gospel. We're in 2021. We're looking back and studying a prophecy that was written between 700 800 B.C., dealing with God's people. And they could not have fully appreciated at that time the great cost behind God's mercy toward them. We, in this year, at this time, looking back and reading and studying this prophecy... You know how we can see how great a cost was associated with God's mercy? Look right there. Look at a cross. Knowing the price that was paid for pardon for sinners. It was the blood of Jesus. It was the, the life of the Son of God was laid down for sinners. And so this right here is, is looking forward. Looking forward to what's going to happen, to what price God is going to pay, to what lengths He's going to go to forgive and to, to save. Because even though He's just, He is going to be able to pardon and justify those who have faith in Jesus. So at this point in the story, we're up through um, Hosea 11, 1 through 11, and we're transitioning into chapter 12. So you wonder how, what, what's Hosea thinking about now? He must have wondered how such love could be triumphant in, in a situation like this, considering the behavior of God's people. But like I said, today we know the answer because Jesus paid the price for our transgressions, and so now God, just like Romans, this is, write this down if you're taking notes, Romans chapter 3, verse 26. Romans 3, 26, it says that God is, is both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. That, that's how. Because Jesus laid down His life, so He's able to punish sin, and He's also, He's just, and He's able to justify all those who have faith in Jesus because if you have faith in Jesus and His sacrifice on your behalf, then you're covered. You're forgiven. Right? And it's, it's a huge gift. And by the way, do, you, do we remember, it's been a few weeks, several weeks, 
since we started this. Do you remember what Hosea's name means? Hosea means salvation. That's also not a coincidence. And we find out, finally, at last, we find out in Jesus, that's how God can be both just and the justifier of sinners. So the, the gospel is just is shining through Hosea, through this prophecy. It's looking forward 750 years, but it's, the gospel is in full view and it's showing in the radiance of Jesus. There's nothing in us, just as there was nothing in Israel, there's nothing in us that can possibly commend us to God. Not our works, not our character, not even our repentance. God's willingness to save and forgive is completely separated from our merit. We can't earn a thing. We can't be good enough. Because if we were, we'd have to be as good as Jesus. Not happening. Right? Not happening. Salvation is received as a, a free, free gift through Christ, and it's in Christ alone that we find salvation. So when we get to chapter 12, the first part of chapter 12 is a descriptive summary of God's indictment on Judah, and it's told through the life experiences of Jacob. So you have some three episodes here. So the first episode in chapter 12 is when Jacob grabs the heel of his brother. Remember Jacob and Esau? And when they're born, Jacob grabs the heel of Esau. Even though he was the second born, he got the blessing. So they're being born, he grabs the heel. What better describes the religion of Israel and Judah than the attempt to use God for their benefit? Right? And, and people think like that today, don't they? Don't, don't we think like that? Oftentimes it's a temptation to think like that today. We think that if we just go through the forms of religion, then God's good with us. Check some boxes and we're fine. You know, and, and by the way, that's, that's exactly what God's people tried to do. Read Isaiah. Read uh, the prophet Amos. And, and read how, Amos chapter 5, Isaiah chapter 1. And they, just, they say about the same thing. They were contemporaries uh, in, this, in this time period. And God says, I, can't, I hate what you're doing. Read Amos. You want to see something terrible? Read Amos chapter 5, verses 21 to 24. And, and God says... I hate your festivals. I hate your solemn assemblies. Your, your offerings smell horrible to me. They make me want to throw up. That's basically what he's saying. That's my paraphrase. But that's what he's saying. And you know why he's saying that? Because you're checking the boxes, but your heart is nowhere close. And, and Isaiah would even say, in Isaiah 29, he would say that uh, about the Pharisees, you worship me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. You teach as doctrine the commandments of men. And, and so there, it's all about the heart. right? It's all about our, our hearts. So Jacob was trying to use God. The second episode in Jacob's life, as we read, this is uh, the first six verses of chapter 12. The second episode is the crucial one. He's, remember when Jacob wrestled with God, with the angel of God? And as a symbol of Jacob's surrender and resulting blessing, his name was changed to Israel. But, but Jacob wasn't alone, right? A lot of people wrestle with God. Have you ever, you ever wrestled with God about anything? Or better yet, you ever, made a, you ever made a bargain with God? You ever tried to negotiate? 
God, if you'll just do this for me, if you'll just get me out of there, I promise I'll, I'll be at church every Sunday. I'll, I'll never miss a service. I'll do, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be. If you'll just do this for me. God gets close to people. They're afraid of what He might require, so they try to pacify Him by giving Him some money. Drop a few extra dollars in the plate. Clear your conscience. But when God doesn't seem to be satisfied with that, then they'll, maybe they'll serve in some ministry position or maybe try to teach a Sunday school class or maybe attend Sunday school. And at last they give Him their family. But they never give themselves to God. Finally, the time comes when they're standing all alone, as Hebrews 4 says, naked and laid bare before Him to whom we must give an account. God sends His angel to wrestle them to the point of submission. Just like uh, with Jacob. The last episode here in Jacob's life is when Jacob meets with God at Bethel. You see that uh, in verse 4. He found him at Bethel and there he spoke with us. He's now a changed man. He stands humbly before God to hear what God's going to say, receive whatever instructions He has for him. And this is the point that Judah, and ultimately we need to get to submission, surrender. God, whatever you, whatever you tell me to do, whatever you tell me to do. So that's the first half of chapter 12. The second half of chapter 12, from verse 7 to verse 14, this is concentrating on Israel, which is noted by the, the word Ephraim that's continually used. Verse 7 in Hebrew is actually a direct address to the northern kingdom and literally translated, verse 7 says Canaanite instead of merchant. It says a Canaanite. So it's talking directly uh, about the northern kingdom. God had revealed himself to his people. He had delivered them from Egypt. He cared for them. And what, what was their response? Rebellion. All that, all that uh, God's done for them, and they still rebel. So there's two pictures here. Judah is standing at the brink of decision, and Israel has passed the point of recovery. So here's a third picture. We go all the way to the New Testament. Romans 12. 1 and 2. You know what Romans 12 says? This is a, a very well-known passage, a little snippet. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brother, by the mercies of God, right? no longer be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And what is that supposed to yield? What does the Scripture say? Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or reasonable service of worship. So, if we're not conformed to the world and we're transformed by the renewing of our minds, what, what should we be able to do at that point? We should be able to see and appreciate and do the will of God. Verse 2, after not being conformed but being transformed, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. 
So, Paul's urging the Christians, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service of worship. So if we look at Judah and Israel and the state they're in and their incorrect response to God's care for them, what should they have done? They should have presented themselves as living sacrifices. They should have given acceptable worship to God. Reasonable worship. Now, why, why would Paul say that? Why would he say this is, this, is, this is the reasonable response? This is what you should do. Why would he say that? Because of everything God has done. There are four reasons. What has God done for us? What has God uh, is currently doing for us? Why is the, the service to God, why is that His will for us? And God is worthy of our efforts. So, so think about what He's done. Think about what He's doing. This is God's will. And He's worthy of it. So that's a good way to conclude the study of these two chapters. Because we see God's response, we see His love, His troubled heart over what should I do, knowing He knows what He's going to do. But then where Judah is, where Israel is, and what should they do? What's the proper response? And by the way, what is our proper response to God? Offer yourselves living sacrifices. Holy and acceptable to God. This is the reasonable service of worship. So let's, let's address these four, four questions here at the end that we see in Romans 12 that are a picture of Hosea. What has God done for us? That's the first question. What has God done for us? Well, He's been merciful in Christ. This is why verse 1 in Romans 12 says, Therefore... He's referring back to the first 11 chapters of Romans. None of us was righteous. None of us was seeking God. But God sent Jesus to make us righteous. God was pursuing us. So Paul unfolds this great plan of salvation. And when he gets to chapter 12, he says, it's reasonable for us to serve God and worship God. Because look at all he's done. He sent Jesus. And if we just place our faith and trust in Christ... Worship God. That's what God has done. He sent Jesus. What is God presently doing for us? So, you probably figured this out, but salvation is not just in a past tense. If you are saved, if you're a Christian now, it's not just a past tense. Salvation is a present tense as well. The Holy Spirit gives us uh, present salvation. So as we come to Him, we pray, we study His Word, we share with other Christians, we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, and so it's reasonable for us to serve and worship God because He's sanctifying us continually, making us more and more into the image of God. So God has done some things for us. He's presently doing some things for us. How about this, number three? Why is such service God's will for us? When, when Paul says in Romans 12, your spiritual service of worship, and don't be conformed, but be transformed so you can prove what the will of God is. Fundamentally, God's will for His children is that we become more and more and more like Jesus. 
Right? That's the process. There's, there's a sanctification also kind of has two parts. We're sanctified when we're saved, we're set apart, but then we're progressively being sanctified, being made more like Jesus uh, as we follow Him. And so His will is that we'll be like Jesus Christ and serve Him. So when Romans 12, 2 says God's will is good, acceptable, and perfect, in fact, it's the most acceptable thing there is. It's already perfect, so you can't improve on it. The only way we find God's will is through our following Jesus, serving Jesus, worshiping Jesus. Chuck Swindoll wrote this great book, probably, probably 20 or 30 years ago he wrote it, but it's called The Mystery of God's Will. And the, the, the most memorable line in that book that I found, those who are most confused about God's will are those who are least acquainted with God's word. You want to, you want to, you're, you're confused. What, what's God's will for me? Here you go. Here it is. Read, read his word, study his word, meditate on his word, spend time with him in his word. The, the, listen, the closer we get to Jesus, the more we'll understand what he wants us to do, right? Doesn't that make sense? That's the only way we find God's will is through relationship with Him. Worship, service. The last thing, why is God worthy of all of this? There's two verses in Revelation, one in chapter 4 and one in chapter 5, that speak directly to this question. Why is God worthy of our worship? Revelation 4.11 you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Revelation 5.12 Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. So if we really believe these things, and it really it makes perfect sense to serve and worship God. If we, if we know who He is, if we see what He's done, if we realize what He's doing, if we're acquainted with His will because we're steadily in His Word, there, none of these questions will be unanswered. Does that make sense? If, if the, the closer we get to Jesus, things just get more and more clear. The questions we have, unfortunately, are oftentimes because we have not drawn close to God. We sang earlier, draw me close to you. Draw me close to you. Is that our, is that our prayer? Individually, collectively? Is that what we really want? Because I promise you this, the closer we get to Jesus, these questions, these confusions, they just tend to disappear. God's not trying to keep a secret from us. <laughs> he, he just wants our hearts. He just wants us close. We indicate whether or not we really see God as worthy of our service by what we do. 
So, if we come together and we sing the songs and we open the Bible, we study the Word, and we say with our mouth, God, You are worthy of all honor and glory and praise. And then we walk out of here and we live differently than that. What does that really say about our profession? So, my prayer for myself, my prayer for all of us, we will always live a life that gives credibility to our profession. That we'll always strive to act and, and live and speak and behave and treat other people in a way that doesn't contradict what we have just professed about God. We, we want to live our profession. So then when we go to tell somebody about Jesus, we don't have to back up and explain a bunch of things about our lives before we can tell them about the good news of Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org. 